0: I'd love to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Daniel chapter 3 today, where we will continue our study in the book of Daniel. In the year 1999, I had one of my favorite movie-going experiences of all time. I went with my friend to see a movie I really had no interest in seeing, but left very thrilled with the experience. The movie was The Matrix. And those of you who were around back then remember, uh, maybe you don't remember, but the movie did not have a very good advertising campaign. The previews for the movie did not do it justice. And really, I went not knowing anything about it. Um, What little I had seen left me completely uninterested. And I left the theater completely just thrilled with the experience. My favorite movie going experience of all time. But one of the big parts of that was I had no expectations at all. I went because my friend wanted to, and there's always a good reason to eat a bucket of popcorn in my worldview. Now, fast forward four years later, and the sequel was coming out, and this time it was a very different story. High expectations, and I was excited about this, and we decided, me and the same friend, we were going to go see it in the best theater downtown Seattle. Not only were we going to watch the movie at the opening showing at midnight, but we bought tickets for the 3 a.m. showing to watch it back-to-back, and it was a terrible movie. It was just dreadful. In fact, we left 10 minutes into the second screening, and I don't think I've ever seen it again since then. Now, I don't know how much difference my expectations made to it. Maybe it's better than what I remember, but... Isn't it interesting how our expectations can really change uh, how we experience something? Uh, Very low expectations can make the ordinary average seem perfectly acceptable, but very high expectations, and it's very easy to be just completely let down. And I think about that today as we come to Daniel chapter 3, because I think about how easy it is to have high expectations, or or to have expectations in the wrong thing, or to put our hope in the wrong thing, and how easy it is when we put our hope in the wrong thing to suddenly find ourselves very, very disappointed and discouraged. I look at Daniel and his friends, and I wonder how easy it would have been to, to place their expectations and hope in the world that they found themselves in. I don't think that they did, but I imagine it would have been an easy step to do. I mean, think about where we are so far in these two weeks that we've been in Daniel. Here, these these four youths, along with others, have been taken captive by a foreign army, removed from their homeland, taken to this pagan city of Babylon, and they're brought into a training program in school so that they might serve the king. Uh, Daniel and his friends, Ratshag, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, decided not to defile themselves by eating the king's food that had been uh, offered to idols. And God blessed them for this and, and allowed them to prosper and showed kindness on them. And then God used Daniel to come alongside the king. And as the king had this this vision and and wanted to know what it meant, Daniel revealed what the vision was and revealed what the meaning was. And, and this caused Daniel and his friends to receive high esteem and be placed in high positions of authority within the kingdom. And in fact, as we ended the the chapter two last week, we had the king proclaiming, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings. And they all lived happily ever after. And obviously the king was saved at this point, right? Well, not so much, not so fast. No, I think that it might've been easy to maybe have expectations. Oh, we're in this great position now. Life's going to be good from here. But I don't think they had those expectations. Because they did not have their hope in Babylon. They knew that Babylon was not their home. It was a foreign land. It was a pagan land. and This was not where their hope was found. Yet they knew that God was on the throne, that God reigns. God is sovereign. And so they continued. But I think we have a lot to learn because today I think oftentimes we put our hope and our expectations where they ought not to be. We've been talking about how this is not our home, this earthly kingdom while God is present and God might bless us, this is not where our hope rests. And so we have a lot to learn today as we come to the story. What we're going to find here is now this is going to center on Daniel's three friends, and and we're going to see things take a turn for the worse, from where we left off last week on a high note, and the king praising God, and everyone promoted, to suddenly a very sudden, sudden change. As we do so, I'd like to invite you to pray with me and let's ask God for his help as we open his word this morning. God, we are so thankful to gather this morning as, as a church family, as a congregation. The elements of the morning are, are so wonderful to have fellowship with each other and to greet each other and to open our mouths and to worship you with our voices. And now it's time to open your word and come before you and learn more who you are and to draw close to you, and learn from you, Lord. God, I pray in this moment that you would be especially present, that you would teach us and that you would help us as we open your word. God, show us who you are. Show us truth about you and show us truth about us. Help us to see areas in our lives where maybe we have the wrong expectations, where we have set our hope where our hope ought not to be. And God, as we discover these things this morning, our, our, our goal is not to somehow fix ourselves, but God, we look to you for that. So make our hearts humble and moldable and teachable, and then God, help us to turn to you and trust. And God, certainly as we think about expectations this morning and hope, expectations of a movie is one thing, but real life is something quite different and God, we, we know the difficulties in the world. We knew, know the areas of brokenness in our own lives. And so, God, we turn to you and ask that you would speak right now. We pray this in the name of Jesus and through your Holy Spirit. Amen. Wonderful. Well, I will trust that you have found your way to Daniel chapter 3 and also found those uh, study notes with you and the bullets in there that will be helpful. As I said here, King Nebuchadnezzar, his devotion to God in Daniel chapter 2 is short-lived. And as we we come to Daniel chapter 3 today... Uh, those in captivity realize that they will not find com- a comfortable home in Babylon. So in today's text, Daniel's three friends become the, the center of attention as they must face the ultimate test of their devotion to God. And I want to begin by reading um, from chapter 3, just start in verse 1 and read several parts of this. But this is a familiar passage for many of us. Um, not all of us grew up in the church and went through Sunday school, but if you did, you'll remember this is the, the three friends who went into the fiery furnace, a well-known um, part of growing up in Sunday school, but uh, hopefully we'll, we'll come to it today and, and see things perhaps that we need to see. So verse one, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits in breadth, and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So, as we come to the beginning of chapter three here, King Nebuchadnezzar has set up this giant golden statue, some sort of idol. By our measurements today, this thing was 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. So, very, very tall structure, very skinny structure, and, and really would have inspired great awe of the people seeing it in the day. And we see here right away this very strange occurrence here whereas King Nebuchadnezzar was glorifying God in chapter 2. Now he's setting up this giant idol for people to worship. And the idol is awe-inspiring and he's setting up an equally awe-inspiring ceremony around it. Look at verse 2. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the providences to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps and the prefects and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, All the officials of the province gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And therefore, as soon as all the people heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the people's nations and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. So we begin our passage today. You'll notice there's a lot of repetition going on in here. The author is being very intentional to develop a a kind of a sense of uh, urgency here and and this idea that, okay, this is, everybody's doing this. I need to do this. And and there's a phrase that the author keeps repeating on purpose. And that is that who set up the statue? King Nebuchadnezzar set up the statue. Rather than just going to shorthand and saying, and they all fell down to the statue, it's the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the author is doing this because we're playing off of something that King Nebuchadnezzar has discovered in chapter 2. And call with me, chapter 2, verse 21, when Daniel is telling King Nebuchadnezzar about who God is, he says, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. So here we have a little sense of irony. This, this king that God set up, this king that God establishes now turns around and he tries to set up a God. And just in case we think that this is maybe uh, some act of ignorance, he, no, he's not doing something ignorantly. He's not accidentally doing this. This is willful disobedience to what he's discovered about God. He is setting up a God in this part. What is, what is he doing? Well, I think that his actions here are in direct opposition to what God has revealed to him in Daniel 2. I think that he is probably trying to prevent the fall of his kingdom that was prophesied. Recall with me in Daniel 2, he has this vision of this statue and it's made of different things. The head is made of gold and then it goes to lesser valuable things, silver and then iron and and so on. And in this dream... God tells King Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head of gold. Your kingdom is the most valuable, it's the most precious, but you're going to fall and another king's going to replace you. Another kingdom's going to replace you, a less valuable one. And that kingdom's going to fall. And ultimately, God is going to establish his kingdom forever. Now think about this from King Nebuchadnezzar's standpoint. He is a pagan king. He's a polytheist. Uh, God has just told him what's going to happen is he likely to just lie down and let this happen? Well, probably not. In, in those days, pagans believed that the, the gods could be manipulated and you could change your fate by manipulating the gods. So, this is what I believe that King Nebuchadnezzar has done. He has gone out and found another god that would protect him and maybe fight against this god who declared that his kingdom's going to fall he's establishing and setting up this great idol of some other god that he's going to put his trust in and then he's going to gather his whole kingdom all the different portions all the providences which are very diverse a big kingdom he's going to bring them together and try to force some unity on them everybody's going to come all nations and people and languages and we're all going to gather around and be unified around this one god in fact, all the instruments listed here is very interesting. Most of these are foreign instruments to the Babylonians. They're coming from different regions of the world. And so here's somebody, I believe, who's attempting to establish his own kingdom and trying to undo what God has said is already done. You know, it's very interesting because in Daniel 3, the key issue here is idolatry. And what the king is doing at the heart of idolatry is trusting something other than God. And indeed, this is what King Nebuchadnezzar is doing. God has shown him one thing, and he's saying, I'm going to find something else and put my trust in that. But what we need to see here in Daniel 3 is idolatry is not simply an issue for a pagan king. It's our problem too. John Calvin said this. It's something that a phrase that has been repeated in different ways, but he said the human mind is a factory of idols. What is idolatry? Is idolatry simply bowing down to an idol, a stone idol, or a wood idol? Well, in certain parts of the world, that's the form it takes. And certainly in the ancient world, that's the form it took. But I believe this. I believe that we as human beings, one of the the natural conditions of our heart is to manufacture idols and for us to worship things other than God. One author described idolatry as this, it's whatever is your ultimate fear object. Whatever is your ultimate fear object is what's going to dictate your actions. Another person, Bill Bright, founder of Campus Crusade, said it this way. He said, it's what's on the throne of your life. What controls you? I think of idolatry in terms of what do you put your trust in? And it might not be a, a pagan god, it might be something else. We can put our trust in all sorts of things. Here, Nebuchadnezzar is putting his trust in this foreign god. But, you know, we, we put our trust in other things, too. After all, I know that sometimes we can put our trust in money. Or we can put our trust in political power. Or we can put our trust in relationships, and these are things that control us. How do you identify idols in your life? Well, I would say it's, it's the things that you think most about. It's the things that you are not happy unless you have, or you don't have a sense of peace or ease or fulfillment unless you have these things. So for instance, if you find you're only happy when your bank account's full or you only feel at ease when you have a financial safety net underneath you, your idol might be money. If you're only happy when your uh, political uh, party is in power or your candidate is in office, your idol might be this earthly kingdom. If you're only happy when you have somebody who reciprocates your love or that one person in your life, that relationship, your idol might be sex or or relationship. See, it doesn't have to be a stone statue or a metal statue. It's anything that we look to and say, I'm trusting this to give me happiness, to give me fulfillment. This is where I'm putting my hope. And my friends, while, while King Nebuchadnezzar here and Daniel 3 is a literal maker of idols, the reality is internally we all make idols. And as we look at Daniel chapter 3 today, one of the things I want us to take away, it's so easy to look at this, in a moment we're going to see the heroic figures in this and think of this as a story about heroics and heroes. And really this is a story that causes us, us to dig deep and say, what are the idols in my heart? Let's take a look as we continue on. We've seen the first person on the story, King Nebuchadnezzar, the, the idol setter-upper. Now we meet the others, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel 3, verse 8. Look at it with me. It says, Therefore at that time certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. I'm going to skip down to verse 12. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now sometimes, uh, I mentioned some of us grow up and we see this story in Sunday school and the images that we see is, you know, the whole crowd is bowed down and then three guys are very obviously standing up and, and the king sees them and he's after them. And that's not quite the picture that's painted here. Uh, here, it, it seems that the king's unaware of them. I don't know how they got out of this. Uh, maybe this was such a big ceremony that they kind of stood to the side. Maybe somehow they graciously excused themselves. But the only way that the king knows what's going on here is because there's these uh, Chaldeans and they're, they're, they're jealous of their position. Remember that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had been given high positions of honor and they had been given positions in the kingdom that the Chaldeans haven't been given and so you have some jealousy going on here. And these guys are turning in, these three, in order to get their position. Uh, people often wonder, where's Daniel in this story? Uh, surely he didn't bow down to the idol. And the reality is uh, Daniel had a completely different position. He was in the king's court. The reason these three take center stage is because there's people who are jealous of them that are setting them up for failure. So they get called out and they're brought before the king. And here, verse 13, Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of, and I'm going to skip all these, the music, then you'll bow down and, and good. It'll go well with you. But notice what he says at the bottom of verse 15. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who can deliver you out of my hands? We're upping the ante here. Remember last week in chapter 2, the, the Chaldeans were told by the king, hey, you have to tell me what my dream was about, but also you have to tell me what my dream actually was. I'm not going to tell you the dream. And they said, wait a second, nobody can tell you what you dreamed. The only people who can do that are the gods. And so that as when God, the God of the Bible, the creator God comes along and says, "Here's what you dreamed, and here's what it means." It verified that yes, the the God of the Hebrews was a god. But now we're upping the ante because now it's not a matter of only the gods could do something. Now the king is saying, huh, "Which of the gods can actually save you from my hands?" So now we're we're entering into a bit of a power struggle here. No, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego's answer, they said to the king, "Oh Nebuchadnezzar, Verse sixteen: We have to, no need to answer you in this matter, and if this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and He will deliver us out of your hand, O King. But if not, be it known to you, O King, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Wow, what a response from these these three friends! They will not bow down to this foreign god now. I want us to notice a couple things here. First of all, the fact that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have been caught not obeying the king's command, their actions are actually shocking. I think sometimes we take for granted, we say, oh, here are the heroes of the story. Of course, they're not going to bow down to an idol. good Jewish boys would never do that. And then we have to wait and say, wait a second, historically, is this true? Is this the expectation? Well, actually, historically, we would expect them to embrace idolatry. After all, think about the the history of the the Jewish people. From the moment they are brought out of captivity in Egypt, at the very moment they they fall into idol worship. Then all the way through the time they wander in the wilderness to the time they enter the promised land, all the way to the time of the exile in Babylon, they struggle repeatedly over and over and over again with idolatry. And in fact, the people who led the nation in idolatry was the ruling class, the upper class. And and these boys come from that upper class. That's what the Babylonians did. They pulled out the upper class, the the rulers, the educated people. They brought them in. They re-educated them. If anybody would have been, you know, willing to embrace idolatry, it would have been these guys. After all, why are they in Babylon in the first place? Oh yeah, they're in Babylon because they're being punished for idolatry. So now here you are, and you're going to be thrown into a fiery furnace. This is not a long shot to say, maybe I will bend my knee. After all, we've been doing this a lot throughout our generations. But no, they don't. So this is rather shocking. And and the question we must ask then is, how did these three get such boldness? Did they just muster it up within themselves? And I would say, no, I think the boldness they have was an inner working of God, prophesied from the beginning. So one of the things I love about um, the Bible is we see how God is faithful and how he promises things. He knows what's going on. He's the sovereign God. He's on the throne. He's sovereign over nations. He's sovereign over history. It's very interesting. I draw your attention to Deuteronomy chapter 30. I mentioned that on your notes there. Deuteronomy is an interesting book, uh, fourth book of the Bible, it was written, uh, it's establishing the law, establishing Israel as a nation, and, and God is giving his covenant, and he's basically saying, hey, in my covenant, as my people, here's the things that you need to do, here's the rules, and, and he sets up some conditions, he says, if you do these things, I'm going to bless you, and he says, there's other things if you do, bad things, I'm going to curse you, so there's a lot of if statements, if you do this, then this. If you do that, then this. And then all of a sudden in Deuteronomy 30, there's a very subtle change in the wording. Suddenly God shifts to, and when you do all these things, when all this happens to you. In other words, God kind of says, by the way, you are going to fail. And when you do fail to obey me, I'm going to take you into a foreign land. And it's there that I'm going to circumcise your heart and give you new hearts that are able to obey me. And here it's literally happened. What God had already ordained from the beginning, he's fulfilling. How did these three friends have such courage and boldness? It's because God was already working in their hearts and giving them the ability. It was very fascinating in terms of Israel. They struggled with idolatry their entire time from, as I said, Egypt all the way to exile And certainly there are some struggles as we enter into the New Testament, but the one thing they never struggled with again after the exile to Babylon was idolatry. God knew exactly what He was doing. So these three stand their ground, and it's very interesting as they are making their statement, they don't just say, you know, we're trusting God in this, but they hold God up as supreme. On your study sheet, in a pluralistic world, the three friends do not just acknowledge God's existence, but they hold up his supreme value and power. King Nebuchadnezzar is saying, which of the gods can save you from me? And they're saying, actually, there is a God, the supreme God. He can save us from you. And I think that's so important. Last week, we looked at that need We need to have a worldview that says there is a God in heaven, a theistic worldview. But I think we also need to have a worldview that says the God who is in heaven is supreme. There's no one like him. We live in a pluralistic world today as well. And we have a lot of people that want to say, hey, believe whatever you want, but you need to acknowledge that other people's beliefs are just as good as your beliefs. And it's not politically correct to say, actually, my God is the God. My God is the supreme God. There is no one like him. But you see, this is part of the heart of idolatry is when you say, oh, there's other options out there other than my God. I can look to other things and find trust in other things. That's where idolatry begins. No, God is is unique. He is alone. He is supreme. He is like no other. There's no other option other than our God. And we need to have a firm understanding of that and this is what we're seeing in this passage. It's a power struggle. It's, is this pagan God, this idol, anywhere close to the real God? Are they on equal footing? And the answer is no. Now, one of the things I'll point out here as well, I love the friends, their determination does not rest on a favorable outcome. They say, our God can save us. But then they say, even if he doesn't, we're still not going to do this. And I think this determination has to come from an eternal hope. They trusted God. They knew that God would work things out uh, for good ultimately. And that's the picture the Bible paints. It says, our hope is not in this world, this present world. Our hope isn't found in this present earthly kingdom. Our hope is in a future kingdom that God is going to establish. Our hope is found in eternity, and in God's kingdom, this is a kingdom where every injustice is going to be dealt with. This is a kingdom where every tear is going to be wiped away. In fact, as we turn to the final book of the Bible, Revelation, we see that those who do make the ultimate sacrifice, and they give their life for the name of Christ, that God cares about them, and he finds he brings justice to them, and he raises them up in glory and honor. See, the Bible says that our present sufferings aren't worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed in us. We absolutely need to have trust in our eternal hope that we have. Our expectations, our hope can't be here. It's where God has set them. And I think they have this, but one of the things I love about these three friends is while they have an eternal perspective that gives them a future hope, they also live with a certain optimism. They have the ability to live in the world that they're in, and to live for the good of the city, just like Jeremiah encouraged them and prophesied that they should do. No, they, they serve the king, and they don't rebel against the king, except for in this one matter of overt idolatry. Otherwise, they're good citizens, and otherwise, they're, they're contributing. And sometimes, this is one of the things I, I do feel, I feel that Christians can become so future-minded that sometimes we kind of become pessimists about the current world. We, we kind of disconnect and disengage and we lose hope. And the reality is, why could why could these three friends serve in this pagan land? Because they knew that there's a God in heaven who's on the throne. Even in Babylon, there's a God who's on the throne. You know, sometimes I hear people say things, and I, I understand what they mean, but I'm a little discouraged when I hear it, say things like, you know, I'd sure hate to raise kids in the world, this world today. And you know that? That saddens me, because here's the reality. The, the same God who, through Jeremiah, said, hey, when you're taking the Babylon, don't stay outside the city. Keep getting married. Keep having kids. Work for the good of the city. Is the same God who's on the throne today? And, and in our society, is our society diverging from God? Yes. Are there many pagan elements within our society? Yes. Is God still on the throne? Absolutely And to say our society is so far gone that we can't raise kids in a good way in this society is to kind of slap God in the face and say that he's not powerful enough, that he's not strong enough. No, God has always been on the throne. And and friends, let me tell you, there have been times in history that are far darker than today. Are there difficulties today? Absolutely. But from a big historical perspective, oh man, we're a long way from where Babylon was. And I'll tell you this, that God shines in the darkness. God continues to work through his people, even in dark times. And we need to have a certain optimism that says God is on the throne. He is in control. I think that Daniel and his friends had this. They, they knew that God was in control and they were able to respond both in the day-to-day things with optimism and also when it came to the ultimate test of their faith, they are also able to say, nope, I'm not going to bend my knee here. Well, it would be easy to look at these three and say, boy, they're, they're the heroes, but really our, our eye needs to turn to God. In Daniel 3, God is the hero. I want us to see this. Let's take a look at verse 19. We're going to see how God goes about dismantling both Nebuchadnezzar and his God, and here the power struggle comes to a head. Verse 19, then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach. Meshach, and Abednego. Here's this great king that sets up gods, can't even control his own face. He orders the furnace to be heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And I'll summarize the rest here. He sends these three into the fire, and the fire is so hot that the warriors that he sends to throw them in die from the flames. As the three fall down, he's suddenly surprised because he sees them walking around in the fire. And in fact, going down to verse 24, he asked, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And his people answered to King, true, O king. And he said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Wow. I want you to see some, some things here that God is doing First of all, God is triumphing in the idol's home territory. In the ancient mindset, they would say, yep, sure, in, in the land of Israel, the Hebrew God is powerful, but here is Babylon, and here our God is powerful. And who's in control here? Who's in charge? It's the God of the Bible. Right in the midst of where this giant idol is set up, this idol has no power. In fact, God uses Nebuchadnezzar's own instrument of judgment against him. Who dies in the fire? Well, it's Nebuchadnezzar's soldiers. Right here, this this idol can't even protect its own servants. And yet God takes this fire. Fire is used symbolically as a symbol of judgment and a symbol of refinement. And here he takes a symbol of judgment and he uses it as a symbol of refinement saying, here's the people I've refined. The fire kind of becomes a symbol that says, this is what I've already been doing in the hearts of these three guys. Uh, They are my people. Not only this, but God demonstrates that he's not like the false gods. He doesn't need a man-made idol to show up. In the ancient mindset, they believed that the only way that you could make the normally invisible gods present was you had to carve a a statue. You had to make a man-made idol. The concept of the invisible God showing up without you having an idol to represent it was, was unknown. It was preposterous. And yet, what does Nebuchadnezzar see as he looks into the fire? There's a fourth person there. Someone with the appearance of a son of the gods, he says. Who is this? Well, I believe this is a pre-incarnate Christ. This is God showing up. Say, I don't need an idol made for me to show up into my creation. Nebuchadnezzar is discovering here that this is, this is not a God like his God's. This is a God like no other who totally dismantles his power. And indeed, ultimately, the biggest uh, work that God does is he forces his adversary to praise him. The one who makes the proclamation that no, anyone who doesn't worship my idol is going to be thrown into the furnace, by the end of this chapter, is making a proclamation that anyone who makes fun of these three guys as God, I'll hurt you instead. He ends up proclaiming God's greatness only a work of God. Only God could do this. Well, how do we respond to God's word? Let me just take a, a few moments to look at these things with you. First of all, I want to see that what Nebuchadnezzar is trying to create, the kingdom he's trying to make is kind of a parody of the kingdom that God will create. Every element in here is kind of this pale imitation of what God is going to do. Notice here that he, he tries to establish his kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar tries to establish his kingdom. He tries to make a physical representative of his God, and he erects it, and he says, all right, everybody, bow down. And he wants every nation and language and tribe to bow down to this thing. And if you don't bow down, you're getting thrown into the furnace. Well, in many ways, this sounds like God. How does God respond to this? I think the words of Psalm 2 come to mind he who sits in the heavens laughs and the Lord holds them with derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrifying them in his fury saying, as for me, I have set up my king on Zion, my holy hill. What does God do? Well, God establishes his kingdom forever. He brings his physical representative, Jesus, God in the flesh and sets him up as king and says, every tribe and tongue and nation will bow down to him. And oh, by the way, yes, there is a penalty for not doing that. There is a fiery furnace. Jesus spoke about this. I give you some Bible references for you to look at. There's a warning. Those who do not come to God, do not worship God, there's a fiery furnace. It makes me think about this. When it's Nebuchadnezzar doing this, he's very unlikable. What a prideful person. He needs to be liked. He needs people to worship, you know, this statue he's made. So what makes it wrong for Nebuchadnezzar to do this and right for God to do this? Or is it wrong for God to do this? Is God's need to be worshipped some fruit of a petty figure who needs people to like him? And I would say no. I think there's several ways to answer this, but I I would I would respond in a few different ways. First of all, we need to remember that God is not like us. There's a a vast difference between a, a fellow human needing to be liked and God saying, Worship me. I read the words of John Piper I've read before in sermons, but I find them very helpful from the book Let the Nations Be Glad. Piper puts it this way: He says, God is utterly unique. He's the only being in the universe worthy of worship. Therefore, when he exalts himself, he directs people to true and lasting joy. Psalm 1611 says, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. Piper goes on and says, The reason we are not to exalt our own glory, but God is, is because he is God and we are not. For God to be faithful to the same principle means that he too would exalt not our glory, but his The unifying principle is not don't exalt your own glory. The unifying principle is exalt the glory of what is infinitely glorious. For us, that means exalt God, and for God, that means exalt God. For us, that means don't seek your own glory, and for God, it means do seek your own glory. See, it's right for God to direct worship to him because he's the only being actually worthy of receiving worship. But moreover, God's call for us to worship him is actually good for us. Because the Bible says in Psalm 115.8, it tells us those who worship idols become like them. And let me tell you, worship of idols, idolatry leads to devastation. It is a kindness of God to say, don't worship dead things. Worship the living God. It's a kindness of God. Moreover, I think we need to understand this, that the worship of God is not at odds with my happiness. I think this is a lie that many people believe, and actually it's a lie right at the root of idolatry, is that I can find greater happiness or greater satisfaction apart from God. Or to worship God means I have to give up my happiness, and that's not the truth. God is your creator, created you to be in communion with him, to be in relationship with him, he created you to know him and to love him. And, and when you are doing what you were created to do is where you'll find your greatest happiness and greatest joy, your greatest peace. So it's not unkind or petty for God to call us to worship him. It's an act of kindness, the call to worship brings the worshiper into his presence. It brings you into communion with him. But how do we, with all our flaws and struggles, come to know the, the perfect God? How do we have communion with the holy God? Well, God provides the way. Just as here God is the one who pri- provides salvation in the furnace, he is the one who provides salvation for us. This furnace in Daniel 3 prefigures the salvation that God is going to give. Ultimately, salvation is through Jesus. And I want you, as we close here, to see the extent of God's salvation. Think about it. As they go into fire, I didn't read this part, but you can go back and read. As they go into the fire, nothing on them is burned. Their hair is not burned. Their clothes aren't burned. They come out of the fire. They don't even have the smell of the fire on them. The only thing that happens is they were bound when they were thrown into the fire, and their bindings burn up. So they actually come out of the fire in better condition than they went into the fire because they come out of the fire free. But there's total salvation here. It's complete. There's there's nothing lacking in it. And at the center of it is Christ. You know, I got thinking about this. Well, one thing in this, uh, this scene stood out to me, and that was the lack of smell. You have to bear with me a little bit here, but this was just where my mind went. Oftentimes when I think about salvation and how the Bible speaks about salvation... My mind goes to one of the stories that Jesus told, the par- parable of the prodigal son. If you're not familiar, it's the story where the son wants his father's inheritance early and he, he takes the money and he goes and lives a wild life and he ends up losing all the money. He has to become a pig farmer. He's smelly and dirty and hungry and he finally says, you know what? I might as well go home and just be a servant. And he goes home, smelly, dirty. And what happens when the father sees him? He runs and he embraces the son. And then he puts on the son the family robe, a robe of honor. And he puts on the son a a ring, a ring of honor. And he restores honor to the son. Did the son earn any of this? He didn't. It's all things that the father is doing for him. This is a picture of salvation. You see, salvation works like this. Jesus came and lived the life that I couldn't. He lived a completely righteous life, fulfilling all of God's righteous requirements. So when I put my trust in Christ and Christ alone, it's like God takes Christ's robe of righteousness and he clothes me in it so that when he looks at me, he doesn't see a, an unrighteous person. He sees Christ's righteousness. I don't earn any of it. I didn't have to earn any of it. It's an amazing picture. God looks at me and says, oh, my, my beloved son. But, you know, as I think about that story of the prodigal son, I always have kind of wondered, okay, you're a pig farmer and you're smelly from this journey and dad put a cloak on you, but surely there's still a smell, Right? And sometimes I think that's how we look at God's salvation. We think, oh yeah, I got Christ's righteousness clothed on me, but there's still this odor emanating from me. I still need to do something to make myself right with God. I still need to clean myself up in some way. And I guess it just stood out to me that they come out of the fire and there's not even a smell on them. And it made me stop and think, you know what? That's how complete God's salvation is there's nothing for me left to do. All I have to do is trust Christ and and I get Christ's righteousness and there's no stench of my unrighteousness left. I don't have to earn God's favor. I don't have to clean myself up. I don't have to somehow make up for past actions. All of it gets taken away and exchanged for Christ's righteousness. And how does this happen? It comes through trusting Christ. There's not a prayer that you pray. There's not specific words. It's a matter of the heart. What am I trusting? Am I trusting in God and his salvation? Or am I looking to other things? Am I looking to things in this world to to make me feel like I have honor and value? Am I looking to my own abilities and my own good deeds? Or am I looking to Jesus? Boy, I don't know where you're at in all this, but let me tell you, I would love to speak with you about that if you need to. Um... I know even this is a struggle. Even if you are in a place where you're trusting Christ, our hearts manufacture idols, and we quickly find ourselves trusting other things. So this morning, I want to encourage you to identify those things and run to God. Run to God. Trust God. Do it today. You stand and let me pray for us. i love to pray for you as we head out today. Well God again we thank you. We thank you for being a God who is a promise keeping God, a God who speaks and your word is sure. You never go back on what you say. You told the Israelites you would give them a new heart, and indeed you did. God, you you call us to worship you, and God, we are so thankful because you are worthy of worship. You are holy, and you are righteous, and you are good, and you are kind. You are a God of love. And God, this morning, as we have looked at this passage, perhaps idols in our hearts have come to surface. And as I said at the beginning, God, our desire is not somehow to muster up the strength to take care of those idols ourselves, but God, we want to turn to you. And so if there are things that we are trusting other than you, God, this morning, I pray that you would remove those things from our lives, that you would continue to do your work in our hearts that we need you to do. And God, if we find ourselves in a place that we haven't trusted you at all, then God, that you would work in our hearts and that you would enable us to trust you today. And God, I pray for this congregation, wherever they find themselves going this week, that you would walk with them, that you would have your hand on them, that you would be with them, and I know that you will because you are the God who sees, you are the God who is present, you are the God who is very near. So God, we thank you and we praise you and we give you the glory this morning. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.